Keir Starmer failed to stop a campaign to deselect a left-wing MP despite an expert warning that the process was an extension of her abuse. Tonight on Tisky Sour, I'll be speaking to my colleague Rivka Brown, who broke the story. Later in the show, I'll also be joined by Dahlia Gabriel to discuss the leaked clip that shows what Liz Truss really thinks about British workers, and we'll explore why the public overwhelmingly support nationalisation, but of course, none of our political leaders do. In a Navarra Media exclusive, we can reveal that Keir Starmer failed to intervene to stop a trigger ballot on a female Labour MP, despite an official warning that the process had become, quote, an extension of domestic abuse. The claim concerns Apsana Begum, the left-wing MP for Poplar and Limehouse. Begum is currently signed off sick after an emergency hospital visit in June and will face a selection process when or if she is able to return to work. This is a story about a dedicated and hard-working left-wing MP who is also a victim of alleged long-term domestic abuse and harassment, and about a party leadership that did nothing to protect her from a trigger ballot pushed through by right-wing factions in the party and friends of her alleged abuser. Epsana Begum is the first hijabi woman to sit in the House of Commons, entering after the 2019 election. She opposed a government whose leader had once described veiled women as letterboxes, and here she is giving her maiden speech in March 2020. It is in this tradition of socialism, community solidarity and action that I now address the chamber today, having been the first British Bangladeshi woman elected as secretary of the Tower Hamlets Labour Party and now the first hijab-wearing member of parliament. Like many of my colleagues in parliament, my personal journey hasn't been easy. But I am proud of my party's record on progressing women's rights and fighting for equality, and I look forward to being part of taking this further. The truth is, there is so much more to be done. Poplar and Limehouse has a high percentage of people from ethnic minority backgrounds, and we know better than most that we must never again embark on illegal wars and imperialism, Mm -hmm. but instead adopt a progressive, outward-looking global view driven by social justice, solidarity, and human rights. Now, as someone who has first-hand experience of the rise of Islamophobia over the past decades, it is alarming that racism, Islamophobia, and anti-Semitism in particular are growing. And while the government continues to use divisive politics, which has culminated in the hostile environment for migrants that led to the Windrush scandal, we know that the fight for justice and change is not over. I will always stand with my constituency, diverse, dynamic, multicultural, multiracial, and with people of different faiths and none, and from all around the world, against intolerance, violence, and division. It's not often that we hear the words socialism and solidarity uttered by Labour MPs these days. But Begum was true to her word. As an MP, she has demanded Starmer restore the whip to Jeremy Corbyn. She also dissipated Labour Party orders to abstain on the Tories' license to kill bill, now an act which allows Secret Service's agents to commit crimes while on duty. And she has campaigned for trade unions and on behalf of private renters in her constituency. Begum was also there speaking about the difficulty of her personal journey. In 2011, a 21-year-old Begum met twice-divorced 28-year-old Eshetam Hack. Two years later, they eloped. But according to Begum, things soon turned very nasty. The Guardian reported this last year. In October 2015, Begum ended her marriage after finding out that Hack had cheated on her. That month leading up to it, I was so alone, she says. 
She was sleeping in the living room with the sofa pushed against the door so Hack could not get in. Quote, he would argue outside it and be like, you're treating me as though I'm a bad man. I'm not going to hit you. That was the only place I could find peace. She waited until her husband had an appointment in another city before fleeing. Quote, if I'd done it in front of him, I wouldn't have been able to do it, she says. That's probably when it would have actually got violent. Afterwards, she claimed in court that Hack followed her in his car and bombarded her with messages causing her later to call the police. There then followed what appeared to be a sustained campaign of harassment by Hack, though we should point out that Hack has always denied these allegations. This culminated in Begum being taken to court by Tower Hamlet's counsel in October 2020 over alleged housing fraud following a complaint made by Hack's brother-in-law. Ten months later, Begum was cleared of all charges. Nazir Afsal is the former regional chief prosecutor. After the trial, he published this on social media. Absana told me she was the victim of domestic abuse, honor-based abuse, and coercive controlling behavior. The local authority were told this and still continued with their prosecution, a waste of public money. Begum made this statement in the House of Commons earlier this year. The House will be aware that I was completely cleared and vindicated in Snaresbrook Crown Court last year after what I and many in my constituency and around the UK view to have been vexatious litigation pursued with the purpose of shutting down my public participation as a democratically elected socialist member of parliament and as a survivor of domestic abuse. To put it very simply, I do not believe that I would have had to endure such an ordeal if I had not stood up against domestic abuse, harassment and intimidation, and if I had not had the audacity to put myself forward as a socialist to represent the area where I have lived all my life. The use of courts to try to pull down political opponents is fundamentally undemocratic and against the public good. Firstly, my case raised questions about the independence of local bureaucrats and whether they can be trusted to deal with imprisonable offences because, of course, the legal action pursued against me was not taken by the Crown Prosecution Service but brought by my local council spending over £90,000 of public taxpayers' money. Nobody, absolutely nobody involved in pursuing this trial seems to have found it remotely odd that the complaint was made by my ex-husband's brother-in-law, submitted after my being selected as the left candidate to be Labour's parliamentary candidate and coinciding with the day when the nomination papers had to be formally submitted. Or that the people who were opposed to me being selected as the candidate, including my ex-husband himself, being in positions of political oversight. So Begum's claim there isn't just that the court case was a malicious extension of the abuse she alleges, but also that it was brought because she's a left Labour politician. This was an impression local members would also have of the trigger ballot process that Begum would go on to face in May. Regarding that process, there have been over 50 complaints, yes, 50, by local party members to the regional office. And many believe the process is being weaponised to attack their left-wing MP. As one local member said, quote, the party is eating her alive. And this is the context in which on the 12th of June this year, after months of torment by the local and national party, Absana Begum broke. She was admitted to A&E and signed off work. Four days later, Labour leader Keir Starmer and Labour General Secretary David Evans received an email seen exclusively by Navara Media. It was from an independent domestic violence advocate that Begum had been in contact with through the charity Refuge. 
for reasons of confidentiality, we can't show you the entire email, but we can show you these important parts. Good morning, all. I hope you are well. I am an independent domestic violence advocate who is currently supporting Apsana. Apsana is a survivor of domestic abuse, and I believe that we are seeing in this current trigger process is a further extension of the abuse that she has suffered. Apsana has bravely spoken out about her concerns. It appears they are not being listened to. Now, that email was CC'd, David Evans and Keir Starmer. So clearly, um, this was received by people, at least at the top of the party. Now, I should add that Ruth Davidson, CEO of Refuge, confirmed to Navarra Media that the organization recognizes Apsana Begum as a survivor of domestic abuse and that post-separation abuse is a form of domestic abuse. Now, you might think that Labour being implicated by a domestic violence expert in the extension of Begum's abuse would have jolted Starmer or Evans into action, but no. The party allowed the trigger ballot to go ahead, reaching its conclusion at the end of June, all while Begum was too ill to participate. Someone who has repeatedly tried to intervene on Begum's behalf is John McDonnell. On the 16th of June, McDonnell wrote this to Keir Starmer, Angela Rayner and Annalise Dodds. I am writing to you as the leading officers of the party to seek your urgent intervention in the trigger ballot process currently being undertaken in Apsana Begum's constituency. Several serious complaints have been brought to my attention concerning allegations of an organised campaign of harassment and threatening behaviour involving sexism and misogyny to influence the process and undermine Absana's position. I believe that the party must take these concerns extremely seriously and take the appropriate action to suspend the process until there is full confidence in the operation of the procedure in this constituency. On July the 3rd, McDonnell wrote to Starmer again saying this, I am aware that several others will have communicated with you and David Evans to raise concerns about the trigger ballot process in Apsana's constituency. Along with others, I am asking the party to intervene to halt the trigger ballot and reselection process in her constituency, given that Apsana has been signed off sick by her GP and that there have been several complaints about alleged rule-breaking, bullying and intimidation during the trigger ballot process. There are allegations that these activities have been organised or encouraged by her ex-husband, who, as you will know, was alleged in court in Apsana's recent trial to have abused her and sought to control her. On the 23rd of July, McDonnell wrote once more, this time saying, I believe that there has been a failure by the party to fulfil its duty of care towards Apsana. Responsibility for exercising that duty of care falls upon us all. Apsana has clearly been unwell for some time, and yet the party allowed the trigger process to go ahead without, it seems, an appropriate assessment of her ability to participate effectively in this process or the impact the stress induced by the trigger process would have upon her. Even when she was signed off sick by her doctor, party officers still drove the trigger process through. You say that, quote, all complaints and information that has been submitted to me about the process were passed to David Evans in his role as General Secretary and have been thoroughly investigated and concluded. Unquote. Given that some of this information contains a submission by her independent domestic violence advocate, who I understand has expressed concerns about the alleged domestic abuse, could you confirm whether independent assessment was sought from an expert in domestic abuse with regard to the concerns raised by the independent domestic violence advocate? This is a complex issue which requires professional involvement. In my view, the party should not be doing anything that puts Upsana at any further risk of harm, and it requires expert professional judgment to be applied. 
Over 30 current and former Labour MPs have publicly supported Begum, most of them on the party left. But in private, individuals from across the PLP, including Stella Creasy and Jess Phillips, as well as Starmer's former shadow chancellor, Annalise Dodds, have begged Starmer and Evans to intervene. That was to no avail. I'm joined now by Navarro Media reporter Rivka Brown, who investigated this story. Thank you for joining me today. Now, this seems pretty phenomenal. You've demonstrated very clearly here that Starmer's office should have been aware, Starmer's office and the office of David Evans should have been aware that there were serious allegations that not only was Absana a victim of abuse, but also that a process internal to the Labour Party, a trigger ballot process, was an extension of her abuse. Now, as far as I understand, there has been no response from Keir Starmer or David Evans about these allegations. That's not entirely true. And in their defense, they, you know, will say that they have provided pro forma or perfunctory responses saying, thanks for your email, you know, we'll definitely look into this. And so, for example, a member of the NEC who raised complaints, his text was acknowledged, but nothing was done about it. And so it's this kind of procedural violence that we're seeing from the Labour Party that claims to be looking into things and taking things very seriously but nothing becomes of it. It's very simple what needs to happen. Absana's trigger process should have been waived. It should now be waived and she shouldn't have to face a trigger process at all. But instead, the party is, as one member of the NEC put it, hiding behind process. They're using the kind of processes of the Labour Party to claim that they're doing kind of due diligence when in fact nothing is being done to protect Apsana. And on the contrary, the party, which has known that Apsana is a victim, as she describes, of domestic abuse, has done nothing to protect her throughout her time in parliament and is now kind of allowing this trigger process, which this domestic violence expert described as an extension of her abuse, to continue. And can we talk more about this alleged abuse? Because it is, you know, it, it could be quite confusing to our audience. There's lots of detail in in the article. And that's because there's two allegations here, isn't there? One is about abuse that Absana, you know, is, is alleged to have suffered during um, the relationships with Hack. And then there are allegations about abuse continuing after that relationship. And it's the abuse which is alleged to have happened after that relationship that involves the Labour Party. Could I get you to explain a bit more what you've reported on when it comes to how Labour Party processes and Labour Party politicians appear, or Apsana has has alleged, have helped or been involved in the continuation of her abuse? Sure. So on the one hand, it's quite complex, the ways in which the trigger ballot, for example, has been manipulated to kind of unseat Apsana are kind of complex and we can get into that. But on the other, it's quite simple. Etisham Hack was, when um, he met Apsana, um, working for Lutfer Rathman's office, the then mayor of Tower Hamlets, Labour mayor of Tower Hamlets, and then became a Labour councillor. So during their relationship, both, so he worked for the Labour Party and since then, she then became active in the Labour Party. So they were both for a number of years after their relationship ended, active in the Labour Party. And he, as I describe in my article, would sort of keep appearing wherever she was at party meetings, often behaving very disruptively. And if he wasn't there, his friends would be there doing the same. And so this kind of has continued for many years to the point where Hack was actually suspended from the Labour Party because of his behaviour towards Apsana. But despite this, he has been and remains very influential in Tower Hamlet's Labour. He's friends with not only the former mayor, John Biggs, 
but also senior members of Apsana's constituency Labour Party in Poplar and Limehouse. So this is nothing of a secret. A group of them were pictured in Poland a few days after the end of the trigger process, which they kind of successfully saw through. In Poland, at the chair of the CLP's wedding, all of them smiling in a big group with Apsana's ex-husband. It's no secret that they're all mates and that they've been overseeing a trigger process, half of which took place while Apsana was signed off sick with mental and physical ill health. Between the relationship and this trigger process, there was also, well, I suppose a, a controversy is one way of putting it, but there was a, there was a legal case against Apsana Begum. And the relationship between that legal case and hack is, is, is fairly extraordinary. Could I get you to talk about that, please? This goes back to the relationship between Hack and John Biggs, the former mayor of Tower Hamlets, who was the mayor when Tower Hamlets decided to prosecute Begum for housing fraud based on a complaint, as she says in that video, from her ex-husband's brother-in-law. So her ex-husband's brother-in-law complains to the council that Hack has been, that Begum even, has been committing housing fraud a few days after she selected to stand in the general election. The council then decides to prosecute her. It's the council that decides this, not the government. So, you know, Biggs is the mayor of this council at that time. And the litigation costs for the council to prosecute Absana in a housing court are actually over £20,000 more than it alleges uh, Absana to have even defrauded the council of. So, you know, this is why I think you have that quote that I included from the former public prosecutor saying that it's a waste of public money. Why was Tower Hamlet so intent on prosecuting Absana Begum? You know, some have drawn a conclusion that has a lot to do with Apsana's ex-husband's close relationship with the then mayor. I've got no doubt that John Biggs and Hack would deny that in any way this was this was a, a case which was was motivated for such reasons. But I think, as you lay out in the article, there are certainly plenty of reasons to believe that. So let's talk now about what happens next. So, as you describe in the article, Apsana Begum has been triggered. So, what that means is that the various organs of her local party decided to say, we don't want to reselect um, Begum automatically. What we want to do is open a contest. Now, as you described, some of the people who were sort of participating or overseeing those meetings were close connections or, or close associates of the person who Absana Begum accuses of, of abuse. So there are many doubts about that. But now we're in a situation where she will have to presumably face someone else some other potential candidate who also wants to be the Labour MP for, for Poplar. So what happens now? Is this going to go ahead? Is, is there now going to be a contest where Begum has to face another candidate? Seems quite possible that that candidate would also be an associate of Hack, doesn't it? So yes, Absana, it seems, is now going to have to face a selection process. The party has kind of conceded that it will pause the process to enable Absana to recover from her illness before it goes ahead. So when that process starts is unclear. Obviously, the um, intention is for it to happen at some point between now and the next general election, but that gives us quite a long time. And as I say in the article, there's no guarantee that at this point, Absana will be well enough, though obviously we're hoping that she is. But so... The problem with this is that the party has said that as a concession, it will pause the uh, selection process now that the trigger is complete. So it's saying, okay, we've done the trigger process, but we're not going to have the actual kind of competitive election until you're better. Now, as John McDonnell points out and pointed out to the Labour leadership, this makes no sense. If you're pausing the selection process because Apsana Begum has been unwell, 
why did you allow the trigger process to continue in the first place, given that over half of it took place whilst she was sick, whilst she was signed off sick? Now, again, this is there's some procedural violence here. The party sort of claimed, oh, no, uh, sick. No, we didn't get one. Complaints about the trigger process? Oh, we didn't receive any. Or when it did, oh, we actually only got a couple. It turns out they'd received over 50. And this is something that we only know because Apsana's office was, in the end, started asking to be CC'd into complaints from members in order to prove to the party that it was lying about the number of complaints it had received. And so, yeah. As John McDonald points out, if we're benevolent enough to pause the selection process for Apsana, why were we not benevolent enough to allow to pause the trigger process in the first place? If Apsana is too unwell to face a trigger process, as Ellie Reeves, who was pregnant in 2019, when Jeremy Corbyn stepped in to waived the trigger process on her behalf, despite the fact that she was hardly an ally of his. She's from, you know, a different faction of the party, sister of Rachel Reeves. You know, if she was unwell enough to face a selection process, why was Apsana well enough to, to face a trigger process in the first place? You know, it raises some really serious questions. But yes, there will be right-wingers standing against Apsana when she's better, including a woman called Sabina Khan, who stood in 2019 against Apsana, who's a favoured candidate of the Labour right and has already sort of been sort of lobbying against Apsana, despite the fact that she's obviously unwell. So yeah, we might see a pretty vicious and unpleasant competitive process when Apsana is ready enough to face one. Obviously, obviously, there's still time for the Labour leadership to intercede to halt this process altogether, but I doubt that that's going to happen. Rivka, thank you so much for joining me this evening and for you know your investigation into this story. I do recommend all of our audience go to navaramedia.com and do check it out. Lots of really important detail in there. I really do think there is so much information in this that seems really significant that this should be in a number of other publications by tomorrow. I don't really hold my breath, but you, you can guarantee that if this was Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader, and if Absana Begum was a right-wing Labour MP, this would probably be on BBC News at six. But because Absana Begum is left-wing and Keir Starmer is a centrist, up to now, no one is picking up on it. I, I, I am hoping they will by tomorrow. The link to that article is in the description of this video. Let's end this segment with another clip of Absana Begum, this time at last year's The World Transformed. We have to recognise that the establishment hostility presents big challenges for us, of course, and that the lengths that the right wing and the party are prepared to go to defeat the left are frightening, as I know more than most. As a survivor of domestic abuse facing vexatious charges the last 18 months of false accusations online sexist, racist and Islamophobic abuse and threats to my safety have been exceedingly difficult. And I'm still having to cope. And I'm still having to cope with such things on a daily basis. As such, it's been really hard for me to speak out actually and uh, about what I've had to go through. And it goes beyond this summer actually and it goes beyond the last few years since being elected. I felt like I've been on the run and at risk around a decade now. I know what it feels like to feel powerless and constantly afraid. And I've known what it feels like to feel completely alone. But I don't want to tell a story of 
victimhood or hopelessness. Because around five years ago, I heard this person called Jeremy Corbyn saying things that made sense and offering an alternative vision for the future, talking about socialism. And comrades, it's this solidarity that has kept me going. It's this solidarity that has inspired me. I was at Sana Begum at last year's The World Transformed, and you can certainly see why the Labour right want rid of her. Let's move on to our next story. Aspiring politicians will always, in public, tell the electorate they're the hardest working, best people in the world. They know flattery can get you far in politics. Yet in private, they often sound very different. This is a leaked recording of a conversation Liz Truss had when she was Chief Secretary to the Treasury, a role she held until 2019. The voices of the officials she is speaking to have been muffled to maintain their anonymity. Basically, British British workers, I want to read a book about this, which got mischaracterized, but British workers um, produce less per hour, than, and that's a combination of kind of skill and application. And... And it's very, if you look at productivity, it's very, very different in London from the rest of the country. But basically, no, because this has been a historical fact for decades. Essentially, it's partly a sort of mindset and attitude thing. Yeah, it's working culture, basically. If you go to China, it's quite different, I'm sure. Yeah. You know, there's, a, there's a fundamental issue of British working culture it's not essentially if we're going to be a richer country and a more prosperous country that needs to change but I don't think people are that keen to change that so I think there's a slight there's a slight thing in Britain about wanting the easy answers and I think that's you know that's my reflection on the election and what's gone before it. And the referendum is like, we say it's all Europe that's causing these problems. It's all these microbes that cause these problems. And actually, what needs to happen is, you know, more, uh, <laughs> more graft. <laughs> and it's, it's not a popular message. So, there you have it. The likely next Prime Minister thinks the reason Britain has a productivity problem is because of a poor working culture and because British workers need to show more graft. Of course, Truss is right on one level here. Britain does have low productivity. This chart shows the productivity per hour worked in G7 countries relative to the UK. Workers are 34.5% more productive in Germany than they are in Britain. In France, they're 29% more productive. In the US, it's 28%, and in Italy, 10%. Only Canada and Japan have lower productivity in the G7. So what explains the UK's poor showing? Well, according to Liz Truss, it's because of Britain's poor work culture and our lack of graft. Of course, these are concepts that are pretty hard to quantify. I'm not sure how one would make a scientific table or chart showing a culture's work ethos. But we do have other data which suggests Truss is, well, just wrong. First, one way we could look at graft is in terms of hours worked. So this is the total average hours worked per year in the G7. The UK is in the bottom half, which is a good thing in my opinion, but we do work more hours than France and way more than Germany, who both have much higher productivity. That means it's hard to argue we have crap productivity figures because we're a bunch of skivers. 
Another angle we can go down is to look at productivity over time. That's because if Britain's poor productivity is down to some inherent national culture, you'd expect it to stay pretty constant. But that's not what has happened. This chart shows how productivity changed in the G7 countries in the 10 years following the financial crash. In the US, Canada, Japan and Germany, productivity all increased by more than 5%. In the UK, it increased by just 1%. Now, either that means the financial crisis for some inexplicable reason made British people relatively more lazy than Americans and Germans... Or perhaps the problem is that seven years of austerity and low investment had meant that people in Britain had relatively less kit to work with, which seems more plausible to you. All this is to say that Truss's comments seem both offensive and inaccurate, but her campaign backers have still been jumping to her defence. This was Sajid Javid's response to the leak. That comment, as I understand it, was made a number of years ago. I don't know the exact context that was made in. But what I, I, I understand what I, that Liz Truss has changed her view on a variety of things but, but, over the but years. But what, what I also, what what does I also that mean? heard her say, just in that snippet uh, that you played there, uh, was that the productivity in the UK versus other comparable countries is generally lower. And that's been a long-standing UK problem. And that doesn't happen because British workers don't work hard. British workers are amongst the hardest working in the world. I mean, I run the health service, and I can tell you they could not work any harder in the health service. Yeah, but, but it happens... It's also, also said in that there was a difference in productivity between those working in and around the capital and those working in the regions. She appeared to be suggesting that the problem with those in the regions is that they don't graft hard enough. When everyone else knows, the reason that the South does better is because business and investment has been focused in this part of the country to the detriment of the rest of it. I think what she's talking about is business and investment because to increase productivity, the, the government, of course, has a huge role to play. There's capital investment, things like infrastructure investment, for example. Those areas that get more of it generally, of course, can do better in terms of productivity. It's also about skills investment and, and making sure that we're investing in skills here across the country, not just in the capital or the southeast, but you're right across the country. And, and that is what's going to make the difference. And now Liz has a plan for that, but it all comes back to the economy because if we don't increase our growth rate, we won't be able to pay for those investments. And that's why Liz has a plan that says, look, you've got to start with tax cuts to kickstart growth. And you've got to make a number of other changes, of course, alongside that. But it starts with tax cuts and she gets that. Now, until that last part where Javid endorsed Truss's mad plan to get growth just by cutting taxes, we've tried that already. What Javid said made some sense. He's right that what explains poor productivity in the UK is investment in training, not a supposedly poor work culture. The problem for him, though, is that it's not what Liz Truss said. Here are the key parts again. Essentially, it's partly a sort of mindset and attitude thing. Yeah, it's working culture, basically. What needs to happen is, you know, a bit more, uh, <laughs> <a bit> more <laughs> graft. <laughs> and it's, it's not a popular message. I'm joined now by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, has Liz Truss let the cat out of the bag about how she feels about British workers, whose votes she's presumably trying to get? The irony is, is that she is claiming that British workers are always picking, like, the easiest and laziest way out. Well, what Truss is doing is exactly that. She's taking a really complex picture that is driven by loads of different factors, you know, supply and demand side factors, things like the global financial crisis, austerity, uh, infrastructure spending, technological advancements, things like this. And instead of actually 
doing the work of bringing those strands into a policy response uh, and actually taking accountability for what her party has done to contribute to that crisis of productivity, she is, ironically, going for the easiest and laziest way out, you know, the easiest and laziest explanation, which is to to what? To, to blame individuals, to call people lazy, to, to say that working class people have a bad culture, have a bad mindset. You know, this is like Victorian era stuff. And, you know, it is the cheapest and easiest political tool because even though, you know, she in this clip, she says, oh, normally we we blame our problems on migrants, but, you know, actually it's also this. But actually what she's doing is an, essentially a version of the same thing, which is to cultivate suspicion and resentment and anger between people so that we aren't actually pinning these issues on the systemic factors and on the role that the government play in shaping those systemic factors. So instead of demanding the change that we need from our government that has been unwilling to give it, we're now, and you know, fixing the distribution problems in our economy, we're instead getting wound up about, you know, our neighbor who obviously isn't pulling their weight as much as we are. And and obviously, even though she is saying this privately, you know, she's not, this is not her public talking point. But but that derision and divide and conquer kind of mentality and strategy is in the subtext of everything that her party does. It's every time they take these incredibly, you know, they take the fact that people have stagnant wages and that the social safety net is basically non-existent. And they divert those conversations towards things about personal responsibility, benefit cheats, any kind of bogeyman that they can they can pick. So they build up this resentment and anxiety amongst people. And that derision and that disdain for working class people, seeing them as you know morally and culturally inferior, that is always in between the lines of what the Conservative Party say and do. So even though this was said privately, it actually, the attitude and the, the technique of dividing and conquer and stirring resentment and anger within communities and within the population, that's actually quite central to a lot of their, their public political strategies. What I love about this focus on productivity from the Tories is, however way you read this, all it can possibly mean is Tory failure. The Tories were in power from 2010 onwards. And from then, the US, Canada, Japan, Germany, and France, they were all racing ahead of us when it came to productivity. Now, if you take Liz Truss at her word, which is the reason we have poor productivity is because we've got lazy workers, then what that means is that workers got more lazy under the Tories. Now, you remember at the time, this was the whole time when George Osborne was going for his war on Skyvers. This was the time of Strivers versus Skyvers. We hate the Skyvers. We're going to make it impossible for the Skyvers to have a decent livelihood. I mean, if, if Liz Truss is correct, we all got lazier under austerity. We got lazier under George Osborne. Now, of course, Liz Truss is not correct. It doesn't have anything to do with, with people being lazy or, or, or not. What this is about is investment. But then again, this is obviously a story of Tory failure. The reason that from 2010 onwards, our productivity sort of grew at a snail's pace, whereas most of our peers grew you know, at a decent, healthy pace, is because we had the most brutal campaign of austerity compared to anyone else in the G7. Obviously, it's countries like Greece that had a worse austerity campaign because that was imposed by, by a foreign country. There was a war on Greece, but we did it to ourselves for some bizarre sadomasochistic reason. 
we decided what we're going to do is we're going to pursue active policies which make us poorer, which suck investment from our economy, which make people worse trained than they would have otherwise been. And that was policy for 10 years. And now you've got Tory politician after Tory politician after Tory politician saying, you know the problem with this country? We didn't invest in anything. The problem with this country is that we've had really slow growth for the last 12 years. They're, they're stuck one by one. Uh, no, no Tory leadership campaign has, no Tory leadership candidate, sorry, has stood up and said, you know what's gone quite well? Britain over the past 10 years when we've been in power. They, they've all said the complete opposite, which is Britain sucks. The British economy sucks. The problem is we haven't had any growth. The problem is that we don't have high productivity. The problem is there's been no investment. They've been in power for 12 years. It's so bizarre. Dahlia, what do you think here? Because, you know, if I was a Tory party strategist, I would be pretty worried that every Tory candidate, I mean, there's only two now, but throughout the whole thing, every Tory candidate was, was essentially saying the British economy sucks. After, after 12 years of Tory rule, the British economy sucks. There's two things here, right? There's like the fact that I think it's always in the Conservative Party's interest to create this narrative of, you know, you're a hardworking, you know, morally superior person to their voter. And all these people around you are taking your wealth. They're taking what they don't deserve from the state. They're stealing your taxes, et cetera. That kind of framework is always the kind of mentality. Again, that, that suspicion and that resentment towards our neighbor. That's always the kind of mentality and culture that the conservative party want to cultivate because it's the one that they, they thrive in. But also the obvious answer as well is that Many of the things that are necessary, and I say this as someone who, you know, believes that everyone should be working less hard. So I'll just caveat it with that. Within the actual logic of productivity as a marker, the things that actually would need to happen to kickstart productivity, things like greater investment in the social, physical, uh, and cultural infrastructure of our society, investing in the tools that people need to fulfill their ambitions and fulfill their potential, uh, things like education and training, skilling people up, but also things like, you know, like building, having an affordable built environment, having a good public transport system, all of these things that would be needed to actually kickstart productivity are things that unfortunately are against the very DNA of the Conservative Party. And so within that framework, they have to do everything that they can to reflect the energy back on the population. Because even if they know the answers, they cannot deliver on them because that is not the purpose of the Conservative Party, is not to do the things that would actually and and, and roll out the kind of program that would actually um, kickstart productivity in a way that is meaningful for working class people in this country. One final thing eagle-eyed viewers might have noticed is that there does seem to be a relationship between productivity and hours worked. And it's that if you work less hours, you tend to be more productive. The most productive countries in the G7, France, Germany. Who are the countries that work the fewest hours? France and Germany. It's why we at Navarra do a four-day week. It makes us work better. If you're tired all the time, if you're miserable because you've traipsed into, a, into work five days in a row and you're working very long hours, you're not going to be very good at working. Work fewer hours, you will get more done. Final story. We all know that energy bills are going through the roof. And we also know what the two parties have proposed to do about it. Probable future Prime Minister Liz Truss has promised to cut April's national insurance rise, saving poorer houses 79p. 
And Labour leader Keir Starmer has pledged to freeze the energy cap at April's rate. That's just under £2,000 per year. To achieve that, he'd compensate the energy retailers to the tune of £29 billion. But what do the public want? Opinion have carried out a survey asking respondents whether they supported the temporary nationalisation of energy firms if bills aren't lowered, and the results are overwhelming. Across all voters, 73% said they did support temporary renationalisation. And here's the result Liz Truss should be paying attention to. 72% of Conservative voters said they were in favour of it too. Dahlia, even Tory voters want to nationalise energy firms. Should Liz Truss, arch-Thatcherite, be worried? I mean, this is really stunning data. And it really goes against the grain of so much that we've been told about nationalisation, which is that it's this old-fashioned, uh, extreme fantasy position of, you know, a fanatical minority, basically. Obviously, as is often the case with uh, right-wing projection, it's the complete opposite. Nationalisation, especially right now, bringing our basic needs into public ownership is a very moderate and reasonable and sensible response to the crisis that we are in. You know, we are in a cost of living crisis and our basic needs are in the hands of companies whose sole reason for existing is to make as much money for their shareholders and execs as possible. That's not like a moral failure on the part of these companies. That is literally, it's like an algorithm. Like if you put in a certain amount of code, it's going to repeatedly try and spit out a particular response to that or a particular action to that. So the idea that those basic needs need to be taken back from those companies and in the hands of institutions whose sole function should be to make sure that everyone has access to those needs, that is a very reasonable position. What, what is extreme? What is a fantasist position that is being pushed only by a very committed and fanatical minority is the idea that after a decade of austerity, stagnant wages, gutted social safety nets, that we can somehow expect workers to pay three times their regular bills without any adequate support. Where do you expect people to find that money? Down the back of the sofa? Like, I don't understand where the logical reasoning comes from for that. And so I wonder if that is what is behind this sort of more groundswell of support for, for renationalization. And I also do think that this is a lot to do with what we saw in the pandemic. I think the pandemic really dispelled a lot of myths about the public sector versus the private sector. It really pierced through this idea that the public sector is inefficient, it's costly, it's bureaucratic, it's wasteful, versus the, you know, the private sector, which is efficient, cost-effective, and has like a trickle-down economic effect. Well, in the pandemic, you saw huge amounts of money being poured into the private sector to solve, you know, not super simple problems, but problems that are solvable. And we saw them essentially waste that public money in a way that hasn't even been accounted for properly. We saw that the government is perfectly happy to spend, that this idea that public spending is something that the Conservative government is reluctant to do, we saw that that was dispelled because they were more than happy to give away vast swathes of money to companies that had, you know, political uh, relationships and social relationships to Tory MPs. 
And we also saw that actually the one part of the COVID response that was actually world leading, which was the vaccine rollout, was actually conducted by the public sector. So that binary of the you know, inefficient, wasteful, failing public sector and the efficient and cost-effective and beneficial private sector really got tested in really stark terms for a lot of people. And so I wonder if that's also a driving force between people starting to actually really rethink this kind of myth that we have been told uh, since the 1970s. Yeah, I mean, as you've touched upon there, Dahlia, Britain's privatization woes are not just related to energy companies. Water firms are pumping our rivers and beaches full of sewage and wasting 2.4 billion litres of water every day. That's through leaking underground pipes. And all this is while the privatised rail companies and Royal Mail have pissed off their staff so much they're all going on strike. It's no wonder then that the public want a pretty radical change. Asked by Salvation whether various key services should be in public or private hands, overwhelming majority supported nationalisation. Across water, energy, mail and rail, nearly 70% were in favour, with 65% in favour of nationalising the buses. 78% wanted to keep the NHS in public hands. Now, Keir Starmer, if you're watching, this probably should provide a political opportunity for anyone willing to actually argue for radical change. Now, you, you can't keep saying, oh, I would argue for nationalisation, but the most important thing is to win an election when the electorate want you to argue for nationalisation. What's going on there? Dahlia, I'm going to end the show slightly earlier. I said to Ash last on, on Monday that I thought it was going to be the last hot show because I am sick of melting in this chair. But despite the sun not being out, I am still melting in this chair. London, yeah. I have to say, <laughs> it might be productive, but it's pretty goddamn groggy. So we will wrap up. And thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thanks for having me. Just a pair of slackers, skiving <laughs> off work early. <laughs> That's true, actually. This is, this is Britain's problem. People clocking off 10 minutes early. Thank you so much for watching this evening. If you haven't already, I, I'm just going to repeat it. Do check out Rivka's article on NavarroMedia.com. Really, really important. I am hoping to see some other outlets pick it up by tomorrow. And we'll be back on Friday at 7pm, as always. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com slash support.